0: Who's ever heard of uh, Henry Ironside? You might know that name? Henry Ironside was uh, uh, probably one of the greatest American theologians uh, that lived. He lived at the end of the 19th century uh, into the uh, early to mid-20th century. I think he actually died in like 1951. Uh, just a brilliant, brilliant man of God. Um, I actually, it's funny, I stumbled upon... I love old books. I mean, I love to just find old books. And I stumbled upon his commentary of Romans when we were on our mission trip down in Georgia. And you would have thought I found a million dollars. I came back in there and I was like, sort of, look what I found. And everybody was like, this old book is falling apart. But it was just, it's a gem. I mean, it is just a gem. He was just a great man of God and great wisdom. But he tells the story um, of uh, a bishop, which we know a bishop is, is like a pastor. Um, who boarded a transatlantic um, ocean liner. He was going overseas. And uh, this was back, like I said, in the late 19th century. So when he went aboard, he found that he was going to be bunking with another passenger in, in one cabin. And, and so uh, upon looking at the passenger, his, his cabin mate, he went back down to the front and asked if his valuables could be put in the safe um, there in the front. He said, I, I typically don't do this, but... Um, given the, the character that I'm staying with, I feel like it's wise for me to give you my valuables. I don't, I don't know if I trust uh, this guy. And the guy at the desk said, that's not a problem, sir. Um, your cabin mate did the exact same thing when he saw you. <laughs> and uh, The reason I tell you that story is because it's a great illustration for kind of where we're headed here in Matthew chapter 7. Um, Jesus is really going to switch gears on us in this Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus teaching us what his kingdom looks like and who belongs in it, right? That's kind of what we've been studying for the past um, several months. And I I don't know about you, but in this study of Sermon on the Mount, I have been, I have just wrestled with a lot of stuff. Um, I I have struggled with a lot of what Jesus has said. And um, I, I just believe God in his wisdom and his grace has just allowed me to not only teach you, from God's word but man I have been able to live a lot of what we've studied over the past several months and um, I, I do look at it as a God's grace and his love for us for for me to be able to live what I teach um, we're learning a huge lesson in the Easter household right now about anxiety and worry and uh, so praise God we just talked about it last few weeks right and uh, so we've been able to put that into practice and and, and I'm just so grateful for his lessons and that he loves me enough not just to, to put his word in an academic sense, but man, it's, a, it's real life stuff. And I pray the same has taken place for you all. I pray that the Lord in his love will allow you to experience some of the things that we've talked about, too, um, because that's how we we grow. But, um, you know, through circumstances in life, that's where we're made to to run into the only thing that we know is going to be there. And everything in this life is fleeting, right? Everything in this life is inconsistent. Even, even the closest relationships that we're we're a part of, our spouses, man. There's inconsistencies in there because we're human and we're imperfect. But you know, one thing that that circumstances do for us is it, it helps us run to the one that's always going to be there, the one that that's never going to leave us, that's never going to forsake us, right? And you know, all this other stuff, even even relationships, man they won't last for eternity, the ones we have here on earth. They'll look different in heaven. But Jesus remains forever. And so he just points us in that direction. And that's what this this Sermon on the Mount has been about. Look, live as people of the kingdom, right? You are citizens, as Paul puts it, you are citizens of heaven, right? So tonight as we get into chapter 7, like I said, Jesus is going to kind of change gears. And and let me just kind of... Go ahead and just tell you, tonight may be a little academic. There's not going to be a ton of application because we've got to set up what Jesus is talking about here as far as judgment goes in order for us to move into how we do it correctly. So we've got to learn a whole lot in the next few weeks, okay, Um, about judgment and all this stuff. I really wanted to try to get through verse 5. We're not. We're going to get through, uh, I think, verse 2 tonight. Uh, and then we're going to pick up with 3 through 5 next week. Um, so, all that to say, it's a great incentive for you to come back, right? So, so you can hear the rest of it. If you just come tonight, you're going to go, man, what, what's all that about, right? But next week. So, let me kind of just go through real quick. In chapter 6, uh, Jesus kind of dealt with the perspective of kingdom people, right? We spent several weeks talking about how the people of God who live who are a part of the kingdom have a certain view, not just on this life, but in the life that's to come, right? There is a certain perspective that we are to have. We're not to think like the rest of the world, right? We're not to to handle situations like the rest of the world. We're not to view our earthly treasures the same as the rest of the world, right? Jesus talked a lot about that, about where we're supposed to store up our treasures, what our heart is supposed to look like, right? And and then he moves into what we're supposed to worry about, which is basically what? Seek the kingdom, man. Be about the Father's business, seek the kingdom, and he'll take care of everything else. And so Jesus finishes up talking about um, kingdom perspectives and immediately goes into the next sentence that says, don't judge. And I think that's interesting because we read that and we go, what does that have to do with each other? Anything? Anything? A lot of scholars actually believe that that was a different sermon at a different time, right? Um, But there's really no proof that that says that that happened that way. So what I want to kind of talk about this evening is is the question that I want to try to answer. Are these things related? Jesus talks about anxiety and worry, and then he moves right into judgment. Is that related? And I think, yes, it is. And, And we'll talk about why I think that's the case here in just a little bit. And so as I answer these questions, I want to talk a little bit this evening about the the basis for Jesus teaching us about judgment in the, in the first place. Because that's going to help us understand why uh, Jesus makes such a leap from talking about kingdom perspectives into earthly judgment. Okay, now he's not talking about the judgment throne here. He's talking about how we judge here on this earth. And so um, I want you to follow along closely as I kind of retrace this path here because this is going to set us up. If we're followers of Jesus, we we know hopefully that the words of the Bible have meaning. Would you agree with that? The, the the Bible has has purpose. It's meaningful in our life. And therefore we are supposed to hold this book in high regard. Are we not? Right? It's not just a a collection of sayings. It's not just some good advice written by some old dead people, right? We we believe that This, especially the the sermon that Jesus uh, preaches here, uh, is something that we are to look at and then believe it, right? But not only are we to believe it, we're to obey it. Would you believe or would you agree with me when I say that everything in this word should be read, believed, and obeyed? Would you agree with that? Good. I hope so. This is not just a book of suggestions or sayings. This is an instruction manual on how we are to live. And a lot of these um, instructions are put in the form of commands. Now, what's, what's a command? What's a command? Do it, right? It's not an option, not a suggestion. It's not if you get around to it. It's you need to do this, right? And several times in the scripture, if you do this, in the Old Testament, if you do this, you will live, right? There's life in the obedience of words. I know that seems pretty obvious to us on the Wednesday night crowd. I know that, you know, why are you going through this? But here's why. The world in which we live and some in the church don't hold to that view. They don't believe that. They just believe, a lot of us, this is just a book, Right? And it's got some good things in it, some catchy sayings in it that, you know, I can put on a T-shirt or a coffee mug, you know, right, and, and feel spiritual, right? There, there's some things in here that, that you know, when I'm feeling bad, I can read it and it'll pick me up, make me feel better. But they do not hold that this word is authoritative. They don't believe that it has authority or should have authority over our lives. And so, and again, I, I say this is kind of a growing issue uh, in the church today, the Bible's good, but it's not the authority on my life. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill uh, said this. He said, we've, we've adopted this convenient theory that the Bible is a book that must be explained. Whereas first and foremost, it's a book to be believed and after that to be obeyed. You see, the most important thing about this book is that you read it and you believe it and then you do what it says, Right? The point I'm making here is that we read the Bible, we study the Bible, we preach the Bible, not just because it's something we're supposed to do, but because it is how we know this God in which we serve. We read the Bible, we study the Bible, we preach the Bible so that our lives will be in obedience to what God has called us to be. Now, why did I go through all that? Here's why. What Jesus is going to talk about tonight in chapter 7 is directed at those who read obey and believe the bible what he's going to talk about in this next section serves as a warning for the obedient not so much in their obedience he's not warning them in their their obedience or saying their obedience is wrong but he's warning against what can happen in the hearts of those who are obedient let me let me say this you might want to write this down as a human As a Christian human, even the heart of the obedient is prone to wickedness and sin. Even the heart of the obedient is prone to wickedness and sin. Let me. Can I get honest with you for a second? Um, when I read chapter seven and was studying it for this message, I, I had a hard time with it. And here's why: I'm a rule follower. Even though I don't always obey the rules, I I think rules are good. I think we need rules. I I believe in rules. I believe in what they accomplish, right? I understand the necessity of them. I I place a lot of value on rules. I just always have. I think they're good. Um, But not only am I a believer in rules, I'm also a truther. You know what a truther is? Martin Luther said, peace if possible, truth at all costs. I, I agree with that statement. Here's why. I believe in truth. I believe in what truth brings about. I believe that Jesus, Jesus was right when he said in John eight thirty two, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I believe that only good can come from truth, right? I believe that truth is the foundation of our faith. It is the standard by which everything else in our lives is based upon. Um, I believe that anyone who is against truth is ultimately against God. 1 John 1 and 1 John 2 talks about that. I believe that if you don't love truth and you don't believe in truth, you're against God. And I find scripture in that. I also believe that God's word, what we just talked about, is truth. All right? John 17, 17 says that. Your word is truth. All right? I believe that, uh, therefore, when we choose to disobey the word of God, we choose to disobey God. Do you agree? Exactly. Okay. And so Jesus, when he shows us this in Matthew chapter 7, here's what he does. Because I'm such a a rule follower and because I believe in the rules and because I believe in truth so strong, I am in great danger of committing a terrible, terrible sin. And Jesus talks about that sin here in Matthew chapter 7. And here's the thing. This is a tough subject. This whole issue of judgment and truth, and it, it's a lot, to, it's a lot to, to weigh out. It's a lot to juggle. Um, and reality is there are a lot of people in, in church who, who don't really place a lot of emphasis on truth, right? Uh, there's other things that they they would rather focus on. But here's, here's something that I believe is something that we've got to understand. Truth is a big deal. It's important. It's a necessity In the church, and and here's something that I struggle with. It bothers me as a pastor and as a Christian when I see other Christians sin. It bothers me. Um, Call it foolishness or naivety or ignorance or whatever. But when I got into ministry, I never thought, and this is going to sound crazy to you. When I got into ministry, I never thought that I would experience so much sin inside the church. It was foolish for me to think that. But in, in a million years, I never thought that I would have to see rampant sin inside or among the people of God. Um, and I tell you, man, when I first started in ministry, I had a hard, hard time. I, I was—I felt like I'd been kind of hoodwinked a little bit. I felt like somebody had pulled the wool over my eyes because, you know, I would kind of been out in the world and seen how the world operated and then you expect that from the world, but man not among the people of God, right? You don't expect that. And and when I was early in my ministry, man, I almost quit because I was like, I can't handle this. This is how God's people act, and I don't mean part of it, right? But here's here's what God has done in the last seven, eight years in my life. He has showed me a lot about grace, and here's how he showed me a lot about grace, not towards those people that I've looked at, but in my own life Mm -hmm. because the sin that I saw and and that could still see in the church, I see it in my own life. Right. And so God has taught me a whole lot about how we struggle through this sin, but even still, I I still don't fully understand how God can allow sin to just fester in the church. I I, I don't get it. I, I know that one day it's all coming to a head. I get all that. But in my human frailty, I struggle with how a righteous God can put up with so much unrighteousness among his own people. I wrestle with that. I do. Um, But here's what I do know. While I struggle with that and while I see people just trample on truth and the authority of God's word, I know that there's a greater danger in my life that lurks within me. And it's how critical and judgmental I am of those people. I believe that that is the more dangerous sin, because I believe or I set myself up in a position that I'm not allowed or have the authority to be in when I do that. And so that's why what we're going to look at tonight in Matthew 7. So let's look at the text. I'm going to read verses one through we'll uh, read one through six, and then we'll just come back and talk about a couple of verses tonight. Jesus says, "Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged." And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy. and Do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you so it appears here that jesus has kind of completely gone into another lane right he's talking about anxiety and how we're supposed to seek the kingdom and he'll take care of everything and then all of a sudden he says don't judge if you judge you'll be judged the same way but as i mentioned earlier it ties Write together, and we're going to see that here in just a minute. But in order for us to see that, we've got to understand the context of Matthew's audience. So let me just refresh your memory. Mm-hmm. Who's Matthew writing to? Jews. Jews, right? He's writing to Jews, and there was one uh, particular group of Jews that Jesus focused on a lot in his ministry. Who were they? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? The leaders. Rule keepers. They were leaders, right? They were considered superheroes, man. You were supposed to follow the example of the Pharisees. And as Randy just said, they were rule keepers. They were known for keeping the rules. No one could argue that the Pharisees didn't obey the rules, right? Even Jesus himself, Matthew 23, acknowledges that they're rule keepers. He says, you know, you, you tithe down to your mint and your deal, man. You know, your, your herbs, you tithe those. Yeah, to the love. Right. So he said, you know, they are rule keepers, but here was their problem. This strict rule following by the Pharisees led to a very dangerous sin known as self-righteousness. What's self-righteousness? Holy of the now. Holy of the now, yeah. We we love to say that, right? That's right. Having the ability to be acceptable before God in my own right, in my own strength. That's what self-righteousness is. You see, the Pharisees began to rely on their rule following for their righteousness. And because of that, they began to view themselves as superior to the other Jews who struggled with following the rules. Well, you just, you don't have it together like I do. Right? That's kind of how they, how they looked at the world. right? You, you're wrestling with things, and so you must not have it together like me. And this sin of self-righteousness opened the door For the Pharisees to walk into a greater sin, which is the sin of judgment. So, let's kind of tie this together real quick. Jesus has talked about financial worries and anxieties, and he said, Listen, if I take care of the birds and the flowers, I'm going to take care of you, right? Mm -hmm. And we alluded to this the other week. We hear that, we study that, and we go yes and amen, only to go out of these doors and do what? Worry. I'm here. That's what we do, right? And so that doesn't mean that worrying is, is not wrong, but here's the greater sin it's when a Christian brother comes alongside of you and goes, What are you doing? The, the Bible says, Don't worry. And you're sitting up here worrying. What's wrong with you, you heathen, right? <laughs> and we, we pass judgment on people because they struggle with doing what God's Word says, right? So, let's talk about this issue of judgment in itself here for a minute. This is uh, probably one of the most difficult issues of, of the church for us to look at today. We, let's just be honest. We don't know what this text means. We, we land in one or two camps when we look at this text. And let me just go over those two camps. Uh, I've talked about them before in here with other issues. It's funny. Uh, they kind of are opposite on every issue. But, but here's the two camps that we tend to want to fall into when it comes to this issue of passing judgment. The first one is the extreme liberal mm-hmm. camp, right? Um, liberals tend to be accepting of everyone, right? So, so liberals will hear uh, or will preach grace and love and mercy, right? Because those are things that help us to accept one another. And on the surface, that's not bad. It's not bad. I love to hear a good sermon about grace and mercy and love, right? I love to hear um, that God is a, a God who forgives and accepts us um, as we are. But here's the issue with with having that kind of mindset. Um, In order to be accepting of everyone, there's no way that you can have an absolute standard of truth. You know why? Because eventually somebody's going to violate that standard of truth. And either you've got a choice to make, right? You've either got to stand on the truth or you've got to accept that person. (laughs) And so someone who tends to be more liberal in their thinking bypass the truth in order to be accepting of the person right and so what that leads to because there's no basis of truth then there's really no basis of righteousness so whatever's right and good in my own eyes is right and good right who am i to tell you what's right and good there's no standard and so what that leads to uh, in the church especially is is then an acceptance but also an endorsement of open sin. Well, you know, personally, I don't know if I would do that in my life, but, you know, you do you, right? We hear that. We see that in the church right now. We see this acceptance of open sin that the Bible clearly talks against. And on the grounds of accepting these people, we believe that in order to accept them, we've got to accept their sin. It's wrong. So so a, a legal a liberal... Um, motto would be this God wants us to be happy and accept everybody right um, whatever the cost that's kind of how they live the other end of the spectrum is of course I just said it, legalism right? Um, which is just as bad um, um, it's extreme fundamentalism it's this, um, this these folks who hold to this fundamental truth but they don't understand the source of that truth neither do they understand their ability or where their ability to obey that truth comes from. So they're just so focused on truth that they forget that they are not the authors of that truth. Right? And so what happens because of that is they then pick apart and criticize everybody else based on their sin without an acknowledgment of their own sin. So here's the motto of a legalist. My grandma used to say this faults in others I can see, praise the Lord, there's none in me. (laughs) That's what a legalist says. You got to get cleaned up, brother. Right? You got a speck, but they don't see the log. Right? That is a legalist's view. So, to better understand the two, here's what we can say a liberal uh, is the absence of truth, a legalist is the absence of grace. That's what we see there, okay? Um, both are incomplete and sinful if we base our judgment solely in those camps. Mm-hmm. So, so where do we land? Where should we land? Where does the Bible tell us we should land? The first thing we need to do is look at what Jesus says about judgment. He says, judge not. The Greek word here is kreno. It's a verb, which means to act as a judge or to definitively make up your mind about something. Now, we can say, well, okay, I get that pretty good. But but here's the thing. That's kind of a broad definition. And there's not all bad connotations in that definition. Basically, what Jesus is using here, this word is saying to reach a conclusion about someone or about something. Now, we have to do that every day, don't we? Don't we have to make decisions? And reach conclusions about stuff every day? Right? Good or bad, bad, right? And so that would would mean that, according to what Jesus says, we we become the judge of certain things throughout the day. Now, here's where we need to be careful. The liberal would say, judge not, and say, yes, no problem. You ain't got to worry about me. Not going to judge anybody. What they don't understand is that it's impossible to not judge, it's impossible to not judge. You have to on some level, right? The legalist then would go, wait, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. I mean, we, could, we can throw the hammer down on, on some people, right? He, he didn't mean that we had to be careful about how we do it, right? And so the question is, what is the standard of judgment that Jesus is talking about here? What is the standard? Do you think Jesus is saying no judgment at all? Because here's what he says, judge not. Do you think he is forbidding judgment? He's not. Again, we we make judgments every day about certain things. If Jesus were forbidding all judgment, he would be contradicting himself. When you read down in verse 6, he calls people dogs and pigs. That's kind of a definitive statement, is it not? He's made a judgment about these people. In 7.15, he talks about false teachers and their fruit, right? That's a judgmental thing to say. He has made a judgment based on those people. Not only that, John 7, 24, here's what he says. He gives the command, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So not only do we see him making judgments, we see him telling us to judge. But do what? Judge with right judgment. So he not only gives us examples, he tells us, he commands us to judge rightly. The Apostle Paul followed suit. Galatians chapter 2. He specifically talks about an instance with Peter. Remember this? Peter's hanging out with the Gentiles and having a good time until the Jews show up. Jews show up and what does he do? Don't have any association. He shuns the Gentiles to go sit with the Jews and what does Paul do? I confronted him to his face and said, man, you do, what you're doing is wrong, right? If that would have happened today in 2015, you know what Peter would have done? You can't judge me, right? Or only God can judge me. That's what we would have heard Peter say, right? That's what we do today. We automatically revert to when anybody says anything about our actions or what we're doing, we automatically go, you can't judge me. Judge not. You should be judged. Right? So, so here's my point. We don't understand what's, what's being said here. Not only that, I want to read something to you. First Corinthians uh, chapter 5. I revert to this passage all the time when people talk about judgment. First Corinthians chapter 5. This is Paul. I'm just going to read 11 through 13. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a or drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now get this. Listen to what Paul says. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Now the, who are the outsiders? The unbelievers of the world. Right? I don't judge the unbelievers. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Same word there, kreno. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So so here's, here's what he's saying. Here's what Paul and Jesus are saying. Judgment is called for and necessary on the part of a Christian in certain circumstances. Right, We are called to judge others. So Jesus here is not condemning proper judgment. So that blows the liberal view completely out of the water, right? Yes, we are to judge. We are called and expected to exercise proper judgment. Now here's the next question. How do we do that then? How do we do it? Because now we have the other side to deal with, the legalistic side, that stands back and points and condemns and shames. And berets, right so how do we do it appropriately and this is what jesus is focusing on here the sin in this passage of matthew chapter 7 comes from the position of our heart as we judge others the judgment itself is not the focus it's how we go about it that jesus wants us to look at let me let me kind of share one more thing with you too um, we live in a um, in a culture where we look at this and judge not that you be not judged and a lot of us today in the church, especially my generation, believe that there will never be any judgment if i don 't judge anybody else, then I will never come under judgment. We believe that if i 'm friends with everybody i 'll escape it right and that 's why we have this ecumenical I don't even know what you call it, man. Like, kumbaya circle. I don't know. It's where we, like, love on everybody, right? But we do it and don't understand what we're doing. And and, and we believe that, man, if I just accept everybody, then I'll avoid judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, what? The judgment. Just as sure as you die, judgment is to follow. You will be judged, regardless of whether you judge everybody or don't judge anybody you will be judged. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 31 and 32, uh, we are to judge ourselves. Wow. We're to judge ourselves and let ourselves be judged by the Lord in this life. Wow. Why? So that we may not face condemnation with the world. Here's, here's what that means. If we run around trying not to judge and not to be judged, eventually we're going to be judged and we're going to be condemned with the world why because we don't stand for anything. There's no standard of truth that we lean upon. And so Paul says be very careful. Examine your own heart, judge your own heart. And let the Lord judge your heart on this side. Because if you refuse judgment on this side from those who love you and from your own heart, you will be judged on the other side and you will face condemnation. That's what he says. So what's Jesus saying here in this passage? We have to go back to The Greek word krino, the implication of this word means to set oneself up to judge as God judges. So here's what Jesus is saying. I want you to follow here. Um, The issue is not so much judgment, but Jesus is warning against the blasphemy of trying to be God to another human. Listen to verse 2. Verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Two things from verse 2 we need to focus on. First, we need to focus on what type of judgment is being passed. Right? What does he say? For with the judgment you pronounce, that same thing will be pronounced unto you. So what type of judgment? And the second one, how much of it? How much judgment are we passing? Self-righteous people... Um, which is who Jesus is talking about here, always tend to judge others with stricter judgment than they place on themselves. Would you not agree? Self-righteous people always expect more from other people than they do of themselves. Remember the whole thing we've talked about? Someone kills your kid and you stand before the judge. You want justice for that murderer, right? Until your kid is the one who's committed the murder. Then you want mercy, you know? That's the way our minds think, right? And our inclinations are automatically to judge others stricter than we judge ourselves, right? We give ourselves a break. Even those who don't exercise grace in anyone else's life will exercise grace in their own life, right? And so when we judge others in this incorrect manner that Jesus is talking about here, we judge them based on the standard of perfection, all right? And I'm going to explain this. But not only do we judge them on the standard of perfection, but we judge them on a complete standard of perfection. In other words, we expect other people to be perfect in all things all the time. Let me ask you this do you have that mindset of other people? <laughs> Man, I do. That's why I struggled in ministry so much. You know the word, you sit in a pew every day, every Sunday. You know this, why don't you do it? But I always seem to fail to ask myself that same question, right? You see, self-righteous judgment demands perfection all the time from everybody else. And so here's why that gets us in trouble. Jesus says, if you place those expectations on people in your judgment, be ready to be judged the same way. If you put those standards on others, then you be expected to be judged by that same standard of perfection. Now, let me throw a little wrench in it. Um, is it wrong to expect for perfection out of people? 48 said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I mean, do you think that he just was kind of talking out of his head when he said that? Every word of God serves a purpose. So so that means something. But we desire that. We do, we should. But we really desire that. But at the same time, we also understand there's only one perfect one. So, so you see this question is, is how we balance the way that we exercise judgment. If we lean upon this side of, Jesus said do it, yet we fail to remember and understand, but there's only one this side of eternity that is, then it gets off balance. Yes, sir. Well, I think you can also use that fact that, I mean, Jesus is the only one that's perfect, and we can't be perfect. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, we can't. But you can use that as an excuse to not strive Mm -hmm. for perfection. We can't be in this life. But through the Holy Spirit sanctifying us, we can become more Mm -hmm. perfect Mm -hmm. as Christ was. Not completely, but I know people, even I've done it, we can use that. Well, I'm only human. Yeah. You know, I'm just human. I can't help it. It's like, yes, you can. Right. Paul said he did not arrive. He said, I'm pressing for tomorrow. Exactly. See, man, I'm pressing for tomorrow. We're people of excuses. That's what True. it is. We like to just, oh, well, I can. yeah. Jesus can't. Jesus can and he can help you do it. Right. And so, and it's the same It's the same argument that Paul has in, in Romans chapter 6. Uh, Shall we then sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. That's the mindset that we have when we say, well, God will forgive me. And so, here's what we've got to understand and be focused on here in this in this part is that, and I believe this is the biggest failure in the church as far as this issue goes. We're, we're not perfect. We're not. But when we, when we fall prey to that, we're in trouble. We know we're not perfect. But you know when I can tell that someone is in bad, bad trouble, is when they've given up on trying to be. Well, then what's the point? If we know we're not going to be, then why do it? There it is. And so here's, here's what we've got to understand. Um, when Jesus said in Matthew five forty eight, and this is so important, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What he's saying is, I know the means by which you're going to be perfected. And what was that means? Jesus. Him. Right? It's through Him and His work in the gospel that we are perfected and we are identified with Him. So that because we're Christians, even though we don't reach perfection here, we know that we will be made perfect in eternity. So we keep our eyes on Him because He is the standard of perfection, but He's also the means by which we are perfected. And so the reason he can say be perfect is because he's saying I'll make you perfect if you trust in me, right? So the problem though uh, in our self-righteous judgment when we say be perfect, right? But yet we fail to keep Jesus and his gospel out of it, which is what we do in our self-righteousness. Here's what we're doing. We're demanding something that Jesus is only has the authority to demand. Okay. We're demanding what Jesus and demands. We're I, would, I mean, I would say so. I'd say if we're acting in self-righteous motives, yes, we're acting within our own power. <laughs> yes, sir. So what we're doing and what Jesus is warning against here is we are attempting to play a role that we're not cut out to play. We are asking a fellow human to do what only God has the authority to, t- to ask them to do. So does that mean that they shouldn't try to do it? No, they should. But it's not up to us to ensure that they do it. And it's not up to us to tell them or condemn them when they don't do it. Our attempts to judge as God judges leaves us just as guilty and condemned as those we're trying to judge. You know why? Because we don't have the standard by which we judge perfectly. We've got to remember that. So let me kind of tie all this together. Uh, judge, yes, ma'am. You, judge somebody, uh, you, and I can, you you know that you don't have all the facts. Right. Oh, yeah. Only God has the facts. Mm-hmm. You might know part of it. And we're going to get into that a lot you next don't week. Know all the facts. Yeah, we're going to get into that a lot next week when we talk about the speck and the log and what Jesus is saying by remove the, that, that log before you deal with the speck. is because of that. Our vision and our ability to see clearly into the lives of other people, even our own life, is greatly hindered. And so we can't trust ourselves to judge perfectly. So yes, we're going to get into that uh, next week. So let me, let me tie this whole thing together a little bit, and then we'll just kind of have to lay it down until next week. Um, judgment, okay, in regards to illuminating the standard set forth by God in His Word should be our responsibility as believers. Okay. Yeah. Um, judgment in regards to illuminating the standard. You know what I mean by that? Just revealing the standard. Not setting the standard and not being the standard yourself. Right? Um, set forth by God in his word can be and should be our responsibility. Right? We should do that. Um, however, we do not have the authority or the ability to impose judgment that is reserved for God alone because we ourselves are not perfect. You, can, you can't demand perfection if you're not perfect. God can because he's perfect. And God demands perfection because he gives us the means by which we are perfected. That's how great God is. God never says do this and he doesn't equip you to do it. Right. And so next week we're going to get into that with verses 3 through 5. So here's where this leaves us for tonight i want you to, to listen to these i want to kind of help us understand what biblical judgment is as it pertains uh to scripture and what it is all right you ready you don't have to write these down but uh i'm gonna to try to go over them so you at least remember them biblical judgment is the observation and vocalization of sin in the life of another believer based solely on God's word, not your opinion. So, so, so yeah, biblical judgment is when I look into the life of another believer and see sin. It is the observation of sin, but it is also the vocalization of their sin. Hey, brother, you're sinning, right? When here's how I know you're sinning, based on the authority of God's word, not my opinion. I don't like your hair. It's not in here. Right? You're cheating on your wife. That's in here. See what I'm saying? So biblical judgment is when I observe it and vocalize it solely on the grounds and the standard and the authority of the scriptures, not my own opinion. Okay? Biblical judgment is also Confrontational. But it is not condemning. Amen. Biblical judgment is confrontational. Okay? Absolutely, but it's not condemning. And again, next week we're going to get into that a lot. Just because someone brings up something in your life doesn't mean they're judging you. Okay? That is a tired, tired excuse for Christians. Just because someone says, hey man, I just see this thing in your life, you don't get to say, Stop judging. You don't get to do that. Biblical judgment is confrontational, but it doesn't condemn. Biblical judgment uh, is meant to teach the one judging as well as the one being judged. So correct biblical judgment means that you put yourself in the same boat as the person that you're getting ready to judge. Why do we do that? Because that helps us exercise grace much more than judgmentalism. Right? It also doesn't mean that because we sympathize with them that we keep our mouth shut either. Right? Biblical judgment says, well, man, I'm, I'm one or two decisions from being exactly where they are, but I love them enough to help them get out of where they are. Right? Biblical judgment is not an opportunity for us to usurp, usurp God's place and role in the life of someone else. Here's what that means. I don't have the right... To go try to be God to somebody else. Because I didn't create them. Right? So so because I didn't create them, they don't belong to me. So therefore I can't always necessarily tell them what's wrong and right. I can, as a loving brother, help them by seeing their sin. Does that make sense? Okay. So what becomes clear to us, hopefully, through Scripture and through what we've looked at tonight, is that... Um, This judgment that Jesus condemns is rash, self-righteous judgment that has no regard for the person being judged. If you don't care about anything but that person's sin, don't don't tell them about it. Because your motive is wrong. You want to just point out the flaws. But if you love the person, you will tell them what's wrong. You've heard me say this all the time. If I, love, if I tell you I love you, but I don't tell you the truth, I don't really love you. Right? Um, Jesus uh, is teaching us here in this, this passage uh, that there's a balance in human to human judgment. Right? And it's to be done um, humbly. It's to be done correctly. But it's also to be done with the hopes of, of restoration of koinonia, fellowship, that's part of fellowship, right? It's holding each other accountable, Um, and and it's also a part of keeping the standards set forth by God for his people. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to help each other with that. It's hard. It's hard. That's why we need each other to help keep the standard that God has set for us. So, um, and and here's another thing. This is, I'm talking to myself. Just because I get some things right in my life, which I do, praise God, through his grace, I get some things right. But just because I get some things right in my life does not give me the right or the authority to come down on the sins of others. And an imperfect vessel can never judge perfectly. Just remember that. again. An imperfect vessel never judges Perfectly. So, uh, come back next week, and uh, we're going to dive into how we go about exercising biblical judgment correctly in a way that the person who is being judged will come out of that refreshed and restored, which is what God intends. All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we just thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for... Um, clearing up some things, God, maybe hopefully tonight that maybe we just haven't understood and things that we um, have wrestled with. And, um, Lord, I believe your church has suffered um, um, on both sides of this. We've suffered by being self-righteous, judgmental heathens who have pointed a crooked finger at those who are not whole and those who need grace. And we have tried to be to them something that we're not supposed to be. But Lord, I also believe that we've been hurt in, as your church, and we've hurt as your church by uh, keeping silent on things that you have commanded us to speak out against. And it's all because we have lost the standard of truth, uh, Lord, that you have given us in your son Jesus. But Lord, we've also lost the grace of your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, my prayer for your, your church here at Medan and for the church is, God, that we, you would help us uh, to find that balance again. And, Lord, it's in your word. Lord, you told us uh, in John chapter 1 that your son came in grace and truth. Amen. And that is how we are to operate and to live, as we hold one another accountable and as we help each other strive towards this mark that you have set for us. Lord, knowing that we only said we only meet it through your son, Jesus. But God, we are to strive daily, keeping our eyes on him. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would just keep this at the forefront of our minds and our hearts. And God, just uh, show us how to do it correctly. Lord, you've given us the example in your word. Uh, Lord, I just pray that we would see fit to um, to carry it out and that you'd be glorified. Lord, that lives would be changed and restored. Uh, Lord, that uh, your church would be strengthened as we operate in this manner. and We pray these things in the precious and holy name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.